0: you turn your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll read the entirety of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 4. I'll bring out the New King James Version. As is my custom, God's Word says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brother, and I have figuratively transferred to myself and apostles for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you do not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you did not, had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as your, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. There is a point in all parenting where we understand the necessity of yelling. Because the instruction of calm voice isn't heeded by the immature. And so we raise our voice communicate the urgency and the authority that we carry. That this is a demand by one who has the right to demand. And that there will be consequences when one ignores that authority. I come to this passage and I find Paul beginning to raise the temperature of his discussion with the Corinthians. By the time we get to chapter 5, it'll be in full force. This is the chapter where he raises his voice. Not because he wants to. In fact, the last verse of the chapter declares to us that if he has to approach someone with a rod He understands that it's sometimes necessary, particularly with the immature, but he would prefer to come in love and a spirit of gentleness. But the immature are not generally responsive to that, for they operate as brute beasts in many ways. And so we find that Paul is going to begin With a different tone. His tone now is going to move into the area of sarcasm. Which you might say, what's God's man using sarcasm for? This is the degree to which he is filled up with the account of the manner in which the Corinthians do church and live their lives. is deemed it necessary to throw in their very faces their own ideas about themselves and demonstrate to them the utter foolishness of it. If there's any passage of Scripture where God is yelling at people, I think we have just encountered one. This isn't unusual, it does happen in other places. Um, Several of the Psalms start to sound like that. Prophets sound like that on a regular basis, it seemed like. Christ himself sounded that way on a handful of times. So this morning we are going to look into the real enemy of maturity in the Christian life. And I hope that we are genuinely taken aback by its measure. That we do seek to look at this honestly and not convinced that God's talking to someone else in the room. He's not. Let's go, Lord, in prayer and make sure we affirm that with Him. Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word before us and its power, not its words. For the concepts, the principles that You are hammering upon us in this passage are the only ones that have power to give us victory in this day and a sure hope of that day to come. Lord, we recognize that You have the authority to do this. I recognize it. certainly pray that each one here recognizes it. This is not about our opinions and our choices to do as we please. This is about truth. About the demands you place upon our life. Maturity is not just an option, an expectation in your kingdom. Lord, we know that that which wars against our maturing in Christ is that which we have coddled to ourselves from our old life. And Lord, we pray today that you might expose it, even as Paul, in the chapters to come in our passage, will expose it point by point, example by example. Lord, we see in him the agony to do so, that there should not be a necessity of it, and yet, Lord, I was willing to be your servant, to carry a rod when it was called for. Lord, we've all been children. Physically, in our past, we've all experienced discipline from parents. We realize that it can either embitter us if we choose to, or it can make us tender to our sin. Lord, the same is true this hour. Your Word can embitter us Harden us if we choose to resist your spirit's work and the power of your truth. It can also melt us if we choose to allow it to do so. You might have fleshy hearts that are moldable by your spirit and your word, not this day only but every day. Or we pray for the balance that your word calls for between love and compassion and rebuke and correction. Let us take this passage to heart. Help us in that. We recognize ultimately we are responsible for that aspect. We pray that you might not grow impatient with us. You might keep working in our midst. Lord, as always, we pray you might guard this time from error, from opinion, from the philosophies of this world not only from what is spoken, but the ears into which that sound goes. Every word spoken, just as every word written in your book is subject to interpretation. We are very adept at twisting. So Lord, we pray that You might Exercise your power in our midst. By your Spirit you might guard this time. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, if you'll recall, we looked at chapter 3 and into chapter 4. We studied chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I want to go back and review some of this as we move into this rebuke by Paul of the Corinthian people and it has crescendoed here in his approach to them. It would almost appear that he has lost patience with them yet we find that he has much to write still. And so he is going to patiently work through these things, and yet that does not mean that there is not place for such terminology as he uses here. He begins by reminding them of who he is, and who Apollos is, and who Peter is, and, and who Christ is. They're servants of God, that they are stewards, that they are managers, they are the ones entrusted with the mysteries of God, and they have a responsibility before God and God alone in the manner in which they exercise that responsibility of servanthood and stewardship. What is required of them as men of God is to be faithful, faithful to the message that God has given to them, faithful to the communication of that message as God lays it on their heart, and faithful to live that message in their lives. This is not just God's requirement for His spokesmen, but for all who call upon Him, who claim Him as their Lord and Savior. This is God's expectation. For we are indeed all stewards of the manifold grace of God, as Peter declared. And therefore, it is Required of us, we've got found faithful. Not faithful according to my measure. Not faithful according to your measure. Not faithful according to the world's measure. But faithful according to God's measure. And this is what Paul tries to communicate in verses 3, 4, and 5. We often think of the word as judgment, as something negative. Don't judge me in that area. And we apply that to these verses and we're wrong. The word is being used here with regard to applauding yourself of measuring your faithfulness and finding that you should receive some accolades for it. That a few pats on the back might be appropriate. And Paul declares that, you know, I I don't see any fault in my ministry. I see a lot of good things that that are going on. I, I don't see anything against me, but that doesn't justify me. I still have to answer to the Lord. And if everybody in the world walks up around, everyone in the church walks up to me and says, that's great, you're doing a great job, keep it up, go at it, Um, and God is displeased, then guess what? I am a failure. Though thousands encompass me with their applause. And by the way, there will be thousands to encompass you with their applause. When we are in disfavor with God, in the stewardship of His mysteries, of His Word. And so He tells us, do not commend yourself in anything. And that's not the exact words. The words in verse 5 are, I judge nothing until that time. That doesn't mean that I don't exercise discernment until the day of Jesus Christ, but rather that I do not commend my efforts until that day. I'm not going to sit back on my laurels and start talking about the good old days and all the things that I did for God back then. I'm retired now from the ministry. There's no season for that in this life. We wait for the commendation of our ministry for that day to come. And Paul communicates that, that I'm not going to engage in that today with you, nor should you be engaging it with yourselves. Rather, we expect, To be judged by God, we'll let God decide what are the counsels of the heart. We'll let God shed light on how we have lived the Christian walk. And then we'll receive rightful praise because that praise will come from God and not from men and not from our own hearts. Having laid himself out there in his own culpability before God, his own, ince- his own inadequacy in measuring his own ministry, Paul now turns to the Corinthians. He has set himself up as the example. And he shares this very openly. He says, I- I've shared this about me and Apollos. So I'm sure he shares the same sentiments every true man of God does. We have taken this figuratively upon ourselves ourselves For you, we want you to see that we recognize our limitations, we recognize whom we are responsible to, even as some of the early pastors of the church, of your church, even as the one that many of you look to for guidance uh, in the early times, even those who have received Christ as Savior underneath this ministry I want you to understand that I am not measured by my standards, but by God's. And I'm not measured by me, but God. I'm not measured today, but that day. This is who we are now. Why does Paul share all that? In verse 6, we find that he wants to draw their attention to the fact that you should learn something from it. And not to learn something about pastors, but to learn something about yourselves. The point of all this isn't to be able to figure out what's a good pastor and what's not a good pastor and point the finger and say, aha, aha. That is not the purpose of what Paul's sought to communicate thus far. But that is our natural response. Because we're all interested in pointing the finger and saying, aha, aha, across the room. It is (laughs) the natural man. It is the immature response. Always. So Paul takes great lengths to try to... Get the Corinthians to start thinking not about him or Apollos or Peter, but to start thinking about themselves in relation to these men of God. So here we have these apostles that are set up not as straw men, but as real men with real ministry before God. Who recognize a real accountability that they will face one day and exercise their ministry accordingly. Now, as you have certainly learned through your study in Timothy, even though in my absence I've been in the nursery ministering there, um, which I take great joy in, by the way, and I'm enjoying that much more than my preaching these days. Does that sound scary to you? They're, They're perfectly decent, responsive creatures, those little guys and gals. But I know, I know that in the course of First Timothy you have to deal with the fact that while we are given a list of requisites for pastors and deacons, we recognize that that list is something all God's people should be living after. That is the ideal and that God calls us to that kind of ideal. And so it is here that the apostles are set up and the preachers like Apollos are set up as an example to be followed and as a human comparison. And this is very dangerous territory, but Paul's going to investigate that's how bad it is in Corinth. When these guys are back there saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of, of Apollos, I'm of Jesus... They are making comparisons between themselves and they are staking claim to a position and to its authority and to its teaching without actually living that. They would walk about in arrogance, unwilling to be taught, because they thought they were better than the other person because they had the superior teaching or teacher or position. In fact in their puffed up state they claimed maturity that they did not possess. Paul was trying to teach them something. He said, oh that you would learn in us to think to not to think beyond what is written. What is written? Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. What is written? All you like sheep have gone astray. You've wandered everyone after his own way. The Lord had to lay on him the iniquity of us all. The Corinthians were puffed up in what they were doing and sometimes in what they were not doing in their great Liberty. See, they're comparing themselves to other immature people. And the result was false arrogance. These were people that were going to church every Sunday. These were people who had received the gospel message that had From all evidence later on in the book, we're speaking in tongues and we're exercising the gifts of the Spirit. Um, These were individuals who were um, having communion and love feasts not very well, but they're doing it. We see, for the mature believer, we move from what we do into who we are. And this I cannot overemphasize this morning. If coming to church is something you do, there is something wrong with your heart. If your Christianity is what you do, but doesn't define you, you have a problem. Christianity fundamentally is about who we are in Christ. It is not about what we do. What we do comes along for the ride. It is the caboose of the train of our faith that we are defined now by our faith. It is who I am. It is not just what I do. And so I do not... (laughs) pick and choose which of God's Word I want to heed and which ones I want to disregard. I do not um, think on Sunday I can do these things and on Monday I can behave as a totally different person. That is foreign to biblical Christianity. That somehow I can sit and nod my head and yet have at ought with a brother in the very same room. It's not who you are then, is it? You are not Christian. It is what you're doing. You're doing Christian things. And this is what Paul calls them to task for. You're going to have to answer to someone. And when you get to God, you're not going to be measured against who else is in the room. Who's next in line? Are you a little taller than the person next, next in line or the person that just got by? You're going to be measured by an absolute standard of measurement that God himself has in Jesus Christ. Paul understands this. And so he's going to draw them to maturity. That's going to be a process. And that process begins, first of all, not by comparing yourself to other immature people. That's easy to do. And you can justify yourself in this very room, every single one of you, by comparing yourself to the problems and lives of someone else in this room. Very easily. Maybe you're doing it. Or you have done it. And it's evident in your lives. And I don't care if you've been going to church for 40 years. Faithfully every Sunday. That's not the faithful stewardship that God calls about here. It's about defining yourself as a child of God. That is who I am. And I will become physically unwell when that which is not of God becomes a part of who I am. that I am at war and as a soldier of of Jesus Christ, that I am recognized that that primary warfare is right here in my heart. These people, like us people, preferred to be puffed up one against the other, it says. So So and 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 so. And I hear it penetrating our prayers I hear it in our conversations. I see it in our relationships. We excuse it to our own destruction. We miss blessing after blessing because of the bitterness the Hebrew says tear out by the root. And yet we not only allow the root, we Trim it like a bonsai tree. Have we forgotten who we really are? How are you different from one another? You're all great sinners. None of you deserve salvation. None of you work to earn it. Everything you have in Christ, you're given. How dare we strut around as though we earned it somehow? These series of questions in verse 7 are pointed and direct. They call upon the problem that was in their heart, and that was of arrogance. That they were above reproach, that no one could speak against them. You can't correct me. I'm a follower of Peter. You're a follower of Paul. You don't correct me. And we have a group of uncorrectable people who are even resisting Paul's own coming. We see that at the end of the verse. It says, listen, I'm going to come to you, but some of you say, he's not going to get here. What kind of attitude is that? It's the attitude of the arrogant. I can do it my way and I'll figure it out and I can serve myself and I can do it with impunity. I can disregard God's Word. I can disregard God's leadership in my life, including pastor and and parents and and I can disregard that and I can play these games with the world and their devices and I can do it and not get singed by its fire you're fools the road to maturity begins by not comparing yourselves to yourselves it starts with little steps and the first little step because you're not ready to compare yourself to God's standard is to find a godly human standard. And Paul points himself up there and says, listen, you know me. You know Apollos. You know Cephas. We've walked among you. You know our manner of living. I'm going to send a guy called Timothy who's going to remind you how Paul lives. And he makes a statement that that is a frightening one for someone like me to propose But he says, listen, you find a godly man in your midst and imitate him. Let's start there. Let's start by measuring yourself against another man, but a man of God instead of an immature man. It is what every young teen needs is a mature man. To throw him down on the ground over and over again and show him that he is not mature. True in the animal kingdom, it is... Those mature ones that keep the raging hormones of the teenage animals in line. And it is true among human behavior as well. And so it begins. But we recognize that real manhood um, doesn't require that. Immature manhood does. It requires to be put in its place. And I don't mind. I've wrestled enough young people in my day, and I don't mind putting them on the ground. It's getting a little beyond me. I'm going to have to start turn into younger men to do it. I was going to say Chris, but he's a grandpa, so I'm not even... I'm looking around. I go, oh, okay, it's still on me. No. And Frazier, we all know he has a body of an 80-year-old, so he's, he's worse than me. Sit down. Sit down. You picked the wrong time to get up. I'm just talking about putting boys in their place. And I just put yours there. This is what God calls us to. is to imitate a man of God. Find that one. Since you cannot apparently conceive of God's standard, at least find someone who does and follow their standard. At least get to that level of maturity. And maybe I've been off base because I've been preaching an expectation that you're going to follow God's standard and I'm going to give it to you with full reasoning that you're going to recognize you have to answer to God and here's God's standard and so get after it. And Paul says, you're not ready for that. Imitate me. Look at my life. Start living differently, at least on this level If you're not prepared maturely to look on that level of what it really means to be an adult, and yes, our young adults, you have no clue what it means to be an adult, because you've been raised in an entitlement generation where no one has said, this is what it means to be a responsible person. It means you don't think about your own interests. You think about others. You consider the community called society. You place yourself in there and you... Make yourself a benefit to the world. Not just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. In the Christian community, it is multiplied many fold. We have no business mucking around in our own interests. Oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. Grow up. Mature. Consider others before yourselves. Paul calls upon them. You can't get to the point of looking at God's standard. So now, let's look at God's men. Let's consider them for a little bit. Let's compare you to us. Wow, that's a scary thing. You've not heard me speak of that in this pulpit. I've always placed myself as a shepherd boy. That is, that I am amongst the sheep. Today, I'm called to something different. And I hate this and I get frustrated with pastors who do this. And in fact, I've always had this statement about my pulpit ministries. I want to preach to people and not at them. And Paul here takes us in a very different direction. And uh, that is that he says there's an us-them. It's time for you people to take at least one step of maturity and stop justifying your own godless living based upon whatever your favorite teacher you want to stack up against God's Word is and start finding godly men and follow their example. At least do that. So let's look at you and let's look at Paul. There it is. There it is. It's right out there. Here's you. Here's me. You are full. I know, I know. Remember that? Remember I mentioned that in a sermon? Was that a Sunday night or a Sunday morning? I know, I know. Pastor, you have nothing to teach me. I know, I know! Then get up and leave! For what the Corinthians said is exactly what is in most of our hearts. I know all this! Why are we here? Because I have to fulfill this religious obligation because Christianity is what I do. But when Christianity is who I am, then I can never come to God's Word and say, I know, I know. I don't do it. I sit there and i got to tell you, I've gotten more and more interested in in contemplating God than in ministering to you. My wife tells me it's time for me to get out of the pastorate. You should go teach somewhere in a school where you can study. Because I'm tired of hearing, I know, I know. I'm tired of people who claim to be very mature Christians who come off with this attitude, you have nothing to teach me! I know! I know! You're full! You're already rich! You have every spiritual gift! What have I to add? My opinion? And I've been told that. Well, that's your opinion. When, since when did the opinion of godly men not matter to us? When? When? Did the opinion, even the opinion of godly men not matter to us? I read the writing of godly men because their opinion is something I want to understand and investigate and yes, value. But we write it off and say, well, that's your opinion. And what you're saying is, I am rich enough. I don't need what you have to offer. I have every spiritual blessing. What do I need you for? I'm full. I'm rich. We reign as kings. We don't need pastors. By the way, you've just entered the realm of Jehovah's Witnesses who make this statement. and Jehovah's Witness doctrine, every pastor is antichrist. <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists came out of a lady who didn't want to follow God's Word She could reign without the preachers through her writing and prophecy ministry. They are funded by another man, not a theologian. I see today this reigning and and we turn to musicians with absolutely zero theological training to drive our Christian life through their pseudo-Christian music. We're rich. We're reigning. We're on the top of the world. We can coast. We don't need you. You're full. You're rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And now Paul's compassion gets inserted here. I wish it were all true. I wish it were all true and we could join with you. The fact is there's only one day and that day is yet to come. When this these statements could ever be true, so let's look at the us them paul says we're condemned we' we're, we're like men condemned to death. that's how we live." We have been put on a stage in front of the world. Angels and men alike watching us. You try living that way. That's how I live. I live on a stage that every Sunday you have the opportunity to evaluate my preaching and to decide whether it was a good one or not. To evaluate my family and my life. And that's okay. That's exactly the job. Meanwhile, you leave here and hide most of your lives from me. And and the foolish thing is you think I don't know it. That I'm blind, deaf, and dumb. And worse than that, that you think God doesn't know it. So I'm on a stage, condemned man out there for the entertainment of the world. He says, We're fools for Christ's sake, that jesters, if you will. But you have all the wisdom. You're wise in Christ, so wise that you know What parts I say you can ignore, and which parts uh, you might take interest in, and which parts uh, you can just kind of kick around the block a few times and then give up. You all know. I'm the fool. You're the wise ones. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're dishonored. It has regularly happened in my ministry that I have had to take a stand for righteousness and as a result, I become the enemy and I am the one that is dishonored. I am the one that is spoken against. And it confounds me that these that call themselves Christians in order to justify themselves will attack the man of God that even led them to Christ. And yet, it's nothing new to me. Paul had to endure it right there in Corinth. I did not ask for this job. Boy, did I not ask for this job. Nor do I ever encourage anybody to become a pastor. If it takes my encouragement for someone to become a pastor, I've got no business being that. It is a thankless, long job this side of glory. It's the highest position Known to man on earth. The prophet of God brought down kings and governors. But no prophet of God can conquer the pride of men's hearts that says they don't need it. We are the judge of you. You are not the judge of us. And I have been called terrible pastor. I've been told that I am unloving. Why is it that whenever we sin, everyone else is unloving who demands righteousness? Why? Because we want to pardon ourselves. Paul gives this contrast between the Corinthian church and himself, and Apollos. He puts Apollos in that category as well. He says the we. The we, 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 we. His entourage of men of God who are seeking to serve God as faithful stewards of the mysteries of God as servants of, of Jesus Christ, they understand that there is a great cost involved there and they're out there paying that price. And he describes it as being uh, hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless. Um, they have this itinerant ministry. They labor. They work with their own hands if they have to. They provide for themselves. And all the while, they are being reviled, not only by the world, but by the church. Church. These people in Corinth were attacking the man that brought them the gospel. i got to tell you, I've lived that. I've lived that. On a corporate level, I've lived that with Rio Rancho, with Charity Baptist Church that reviled me, Uh, the guy that started the church there, um, and cut off all relations with us. Why? Because they listened to a man who was self-interested. And it's like, do you not remember those years of my preaching there? Do you really, does that sound like me at all? I've seen it in this church. Ones that have been led to the Lord and nurtured in Him, under this ministry, under my ministry, revile me. What is my response? I bless them. Pray for them. If they come back, I'll minister to them again. And I have over and over and over. Because that's what God calls us to. The guy who has no compassion, is not very loving, is harsh, is the guy that keeps standing up and going to bat for the very people Who do this to him. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. That's a very humble statement, by the way, to entreat there. Um, we exhort encourage. We call them to righteousness. You can defame me all you want, and I'm just going to keep begging that you get right with God. Wonderful statement. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Right up to that very moment of Paul's writing, this is how he's been treated. Not from the world, but from God's people. Who in their arrogance say, we don't need what you are dishing out. We don't need it. Not interested This is not a shame message. This is a warning message. If the servants of Christ who are diligently striving to be found faithful in God's sight are fearful of the day of revelation. Why aren't you? That's the warning. Why are you puffed up? Compare yourself to these true servants of God. Do you measure up to that? And yes, I do read the Biographies of, and autobiographies of some of the, my predecessors in the ministry. They're precious. Because I don't measure up to them. And I know it. I don't measure up to their prayer life. I don't measure up to their writing. I, I get excited if I write two pages one day. And they're, 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 the proliferation is just incredible. What they're pumping out. Not just in, Theological statements, but in letters, in songs that they were writing, yes, those hymns pumped out by theologians, pastors. Just their opinion, though. We don't really need it. If I had a choice between my favorite television program, my favorite sports team, my favorite whatever, and listen to that old bald fat man in the pulpit, I'll choose that. And you show it Regularly your kids know it then you wonder why they wander off when they become physically mature but they're spiritually handicapped because they're raised by immature christian parents who wouldn't take a stand The scary proposition Paul lays out there. Imitate me. That I as a pastor called upon to be an example to the saints. Paul tells Timothy, be an example. Don't let anyone despise your youth. doesn't matter how old you are. You've been put in this ministry. God Himself has placed you there. And as a steward of the mysteries of God, one of the things that's required of me is to be an example to the believers. And I've sought to try to be that. Have I done it perfectly? No. Did Paul do it perfectly? No. You're not ready for a perfect example. Yeah. Follow this example first. The teens ask me, who intimidates me? That's very, very, very few people intimidate me in this world. One person intimidates me and that is my wife. Because I see her godliness every day. You should be following her example. Just to take a step towards maturity, identify godly men, godly women and say, I will imitate Him. Instead of saying, I'm going to carouse around in my own little life because I'm a little bit better than that person over there who's also carousing around their little life. And because I don't use their curse words, somehow I'm more godly. And therefore, I'm okay. I am justified. Shame on you. The warning stands. You will be measured one day and the measurement will not be Kirk Westlake. It will not be Paul the Apostle. It will be Jesus Christ. And if we are not taking some steps towards there, we are in grave danger come that day where there will be much weeping. So start taking little steps. Find godly men and women and imitate them. I lay myself out there to our teens on a regular basis. Every study comes from my heart. I want to lay them out an example to follow. And by God's grace and mercy, He has preserved me from a lot of sin. I want them to follow my example in courtship and marriage. Does that mean they have to do it exactly the way I did it? No. But they have to do it according to righteousness, according to God's Word. I want that for them. So I lay my life open. I say, imitate me. Do it God's way. I did it. And yes, my world was different than yours. Yes, we we're all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's my generation. Oh yeah, LSD, woo! You know, that's where tie dye came from, okay? Just get your, get, get, frame that a little bit in your mind. Acid rock, that's where it came from, my generation. Can you court and wed in a pure, godly way in the midst of a perverse generation absolutely imitate me and i can sit before our young people and say there's only one woman i've ever romantically kissed in my life and her name is joyce can you imitate me we're not even getting yet to imitating christ This is Paul's statement to them. You want to puff yourself up? And he's gonna to have to do this again and again throughout Corinthians and 1st Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He's gonna to have to keep saying, Have you done this? Have you done this? Can you compare to this? Why are, you, why are you thinking you're okay in where you're at? Look at the men of God that God's brought into your life and say, How do I measure up to that? And I praise God for some men that He has brought into my life that I looked at and scratched my head and said, I don't think I can do it, but that's my goal. I'll at least try to go after His example. And praise God for the David Duncans and the Jim Turners that are in my life that just laid it out there and said, this is an example to follow. And that's what I seek before God to be to my children to my wife, to my church, to my community. But then I have to deal with the fact that there is little regard. In fact, there's little investigation really into even what is at the core of who I am. Paul reveals that in his writings of who He is, that He's crucified in Christ. He teaches it, and I seek to teach who I am in Christ. But I find little interest in investigating it. That's just the way pastor is. And I'm really tired of hearing that. That's just the way pastor is. Because it's not true. I've sought to live a thoughtful Christian life and to try to mold my character around Christ. I am not the way I am just by happenstance that you happen to be able to avoid or to miss. I was told this week, well I didn't have the advantage you had. Really? My parents went bankrupt. I answered the phone for bill collectors. This is the area of finances, if you hadn't figured that out already. What advantage did I have? I had a really bad example at home. I looked in God's word and I said, I don't think that's what God wants for my life, and I'm going to choose differently. So don't give me this nonsense about the advantages I had. Well, you had the advantage of a godly home. And, and, and i got to tell you, my parents fought constantly. I went out looking for a wife, and you know what my number one criteria was? Not like mom. So I don't want to hear about all the advantages that I had. To excuse your sin. I've sought to live my life for God. That should tell you something. Here's someone I should seek to try to imitate on my way to imitating Christ. And this is what God Brings forth. And that's why you come to Timothy and you have this extensive list of personal life issues that we examine preachers over about what is going on in their home. What is going on between them and their wife? What is their relationship to the world? Not given to wine. Not violent. Not greedy for money. Gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not covetousness. I mean, you look at that list. It's all about here's a man to be followed. On your steps of maturity. And the Corinthians were walking around. We don't need that. I got the Holy Spirit. And I can speak in tongues just to prove it. See? What do I need you for? And yes, that's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. Otherwise, 1 Corinthians 12 wouldn't be in the book. But it is. They're puffed up in their position in the Spirit and not recognizing that amongst the gifts of God to the church are pastors, teachers, prophets. Not that they have more of the Spirit, but they have surrendered themselves more so the Spirit, and they have matured themselves in the spiritual life, and they therefore serve as an intermediary example between where you are as a baby in Christ to where you should be as a mature follower of Jesus Christ. You have this intermediate examples to say, oh, that I would imitate Him at least. That's just the way Pastor is. We can disregard it. There's no TV, broadcast TV in my home, because my wife and I have thoughtfully considered it. And we see the impact of the world upon our own thinking, on our children. It is a drug. And the way you stop addictions to drugs is you remove it from your midst. And we have. What should that tell you? We are careful in the music that we listen to. We enjoy various genres, but we are very careful about them. What should that tell you about your music? List. We seek out to be harmless and helpful when the world is violent and selfish. What should that tell you? How you should live. We will throw down any plans we have at any moment's notice, to minister to you? What should that tell you about how you should live? This is not just the way pastor is. This is the way pastor is trying to imitate Christ. And every time you catch yourself saying, that's just the way pastor is, they're weird. Reminding yourself that you are not only in the world, but of it. The opposite of being puffed up is being humbled. God humbled these men time and again, and they willingly received that humiliation because they did not serve primarily the church, they were serving God. Do not serve as your pastor primarily to serve you but to serve God thankfully my eternal reward is not dependent upon your opinion survey that's why we don't issue them neither does God This is what is called upon when God's Word describes the pastor as ruling the church. It is a spiritual reign. He has a responsibility to be the defender of truth, to be the proponent of righteousness, and to seek to bring in some form the demands of God upon God's people here on earth in His stead. I do not need a slap on the back for that. I do not need a way to go buddy for that. I don't want it. I don't seek it. Paul rightly said in Ephesians, my glory is in you, church. It's when you Portray Christ. When God is pleased with you, I'll be pleased with my ministry. That's what God asks for thanks for saving your soul is to serve His Son. What your pastor asks for thanks is not a bigger paycheck. It's not a vacation trip. What he asks is the same thing that God asks, oh, that you would live for Christ. To minister to such a body of saints that want to live for Christ would be pure joy. And I stand before you as a pastor who doesn't have that joy. And so I come to a passage in Corinthians dealing with the arrogance of people who think they're full, think they're rich, reigning as kings without us. And I wish it were true. But if it were true, there would be so much more evidence of godliness amongst us. So, am I going to stop preaching and go teach in the seminary? No. I don't want that demotion. I'm going to do what Ezekiel did and just keep hitting my head against the wall, knowing that God made it out of flint. I want to share with you my example. And I hope maybe an example for you. There are several in Scripture. One of my favorites is a guy named Daniel. And he's very appropriate for us, for me. I'm not going to talk about you. This is about you and me. So this is about me. That was about you. Now it's about me. Here you go. Why is it appropriate for me? Here's a man of God who was taken into an affluent society that was godless. And the way he exercised his godliness was to say, I'll not be a part of that I'll not be a part of that. I'll not be a part of that. I'm not going to be a part of that. I won't eat that. I won't enjoy that. And he stuck out like a sore thumb. And people hated him. And devised wicked schemes against him. But he remained true to that course. And God lifted him up. We live in a fluent, powerful place with lots of enticements. We are engulfed in enticements. And we let them just draw us into the philosophy, into the lifestyle of the world like we've got a ring in our nose and the world's holding a leash. Come on over. Eat this. Enjoy this. Worship this. And we just Plod along like dumb animals. Oh, for men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would say, no way. If it's of Babylon, it's not for me. No, it's not for me. Put me to the test. And by saying, put me to the test, Daniel was saying, put my God to the test. That's what he was saying. King, you can put me to the test. Me and my three friends. Put us to the test. We're just going to eat this bland, kind of poor food. You put us to the test. But what you're really doing is putting my God to the test. And my God's up to it. So Daniel becomes a great example for us. For we live in a fluent place with much power. And we could easily become drunk with that and imbibe ourselves with it. We can enjoy all the comforts that are out there. And there will be no test. In fact, there will not even be a question of who is your God. Let alone a test of your God. Because there's no difference there's no difference between you and the world? On the outside, I have to wonder if there's a difference in the inside. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm warning you. Take some steps toward maturity. Imitate me. on your way to imitating Christ. And I look forward to the day that some of you might surpass me.